You all can be seated. Uh, You can open up your Bible uh, to the book of John, chapter 17. We're mainly going to look at one short verse that I think has like nine words in it uh, this morning, John 17, 17, but uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I don't know how many of you are word geeks, probably not very many. I don't even know that I would classify myself as that, but I was remembering a couple years ago back in 2016, Uh, As I was getting ready for this sermon, I was remembering that uh, there was a quote-unquote word of the year uh, chosen by Oxford Dictionary. Every year they come up with a word of the year that they think is either a brand new word that's circulating in our culture or uh, that is just becoming more used or meanings changing, things like that. But their word of the year for 2016, if you can remember back to the craziness of that year, uh, their, their word of the year was this, was post-truth. It's like a hyphenated word, post-truth. Uh, and how they defined it, this is a mouthful, especially for kids, uh, but how they defined it was this. They said that post-truth is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Uh, and basically what they're, they're getting at is that in our society, uh, in different subsets of it, different parts of life, that it's, it's no longer that when you are reasoning with someone that you can appeal to, hey, this is right, this is wrong. No matter what you think or I think about it, this is objectively true, this is objectively false. Uh, that whole idea of truth has just kind of started to slowly evaporate. And so it just becomes kind of who's... A, What's your opinion? What's my opinion? Uh, And who can argue it more forcefully or more persuasively? Uh, That's why we've developed phrases which just drive me up a wall like your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth, their truth. Uh, Those phrases are things that indicate uh, things, uh, a phrase like alternative facts stuff like that. Like we've developed this idea that there is no real concept of what is true and what is false. That everything we believe is just opinion. uh, And then if people believe that, that there's no truth, what you start to appeal to them with is just emotion. You try to start to appeal to them with sentimentality or like forcefulness sometimes uh, instead of uh, sharing what is true. And there can be a temptation in Christian circles and in churches to when we start to see the culture at large start to believe in this idea of post-truth, that there is no truth, and we see culture kind of drifting out from the shore of truth. The the temptation can be to go out after them and, and, and meet them where they're at and to start to just appeal based on emotion, based on experience, based on relationship alone. Uh, things like that. But I want to speak clearly today uh, from this text that we'll come to that Christianity does not exist without truth claims. There is no Christianity in a post-truth world. There's no legitimate Christianity. Christianity doesn't exist without truth. And God calls us as human beings and as Christians to believe truth calls us to obey truth. He wants our churches and our individual lives to be marked by truth. He wants us to be people who proclaim that truth does indeed exist, whether people think it does or not. Uh, And we should even have the humility but the courage to say that we have the truth, right? That we believe the truth. 
That we're clinging to the truth. Not does it just exist, but we have it. We believe it. We cling to it. We live in accordance with us. And that truth is what gives us hope. Uh, that, that truth is what gives us direction in life. And so this morning we're going to continue with a series we started last Sunday. Normally as a church we go through books of the Bible straight. We're taking seven weeks and doing something a little bit different. We're, we're just doing a series we're calling one word, Values. And we're, we're trying to come to a different text each week. But trying to get at this idea of what are seven values, biblically speaking, that should mark the life of our church, both private life, public life, things we do formally, informally, our missions, our, our outreaches, our classes, our, our gatherings, our, our life groups, all these things. What are seven things that we want to prioritize, that we want to mark the life of our church? Uh, that should be like the DNA of our church that, that fleshes itself out in all the different domains of church life. And last week we started with that first strand of DNA that was grace. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and saw the, the overwhelming grace of God to us who are undeserving. Uh, how he has shown grace to us, unmerited favor to us, and how that should affect how we relate to each other. That we should be gracious people because we've received grace, right? So strand number two of the DNA, uh, the second value that we're going to look at today that we want as a church, biblically speaking, to, to mark everything that we do is truth. And so we're going to look at John 17, verse 17, 17, 17 today. I'm going to read a few verses before and after that verse uh, so we can understand kind of what's going on and what Jesus was saying. This was part of a prayer that Jesus prayed that very night we were talking about earlier as we took communion together. That night he broke the bread, drank the cup with his disciples. He had much to say to them that night, but he also had much that he wanted to pray his heavenly father and john chapter 17 is the recording at least of some of what he prayed that night to god the father and what we're going to read is a smaller subset of that prayer we're going to read john 17 i'll start at verse 14 and then i'll go down to verse 19 but then we're going to really zero in on verse 17 the one right there in the middle so follow along with me uh, john 17 14 and following so Jesus prayed this to his heavenly Father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. I want to explain a little bit of what uh, Jesus is getting at in this prayer, as best as I can understand it, in verse 17, that statement, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, a starting point that's important is just to clarify who Jesus was praying for, right? Uh, we, want, we want to make sure that we're understanding who he's praying for, what he's praying for, how he thinks that's going to actually come about. And you can see those things in this text. So who's he praying for that night as he's about to be betrayed, as he's about to be arrested, as he's about to be crucified the next morning? Who is he praying for? And we get the answer when he says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. 
Sanctify them in the truth. A, a person's prayers uh, reveal who and what they care about the most, I would say. Uh, if you get to overhear someone praying, you can tell pretty quickly who they care about and what they care about. And as, as we get to, to eavesdrop, so to speak, on Jesus' prayer, we can see that the them that he's praying for was not the whole world, was not just all of humanity at large, but there was a narrower them that Jesus was praying for, and it was his disciples. It was all those who would believe in him, both that already were there in the room with him that night, but then if you just even drop your eyes down to the next verse we didn't read, verse 20, you can see that he's also praying not just for the people who were in that room with him that night, but even for all the people who would believe in him in due time. Years and decades and millennia even afterward, he's also praying for them, all who would believe upon him, all who would place their faith in him, and that would include many of us in this room, right? May very well include you, uh, that Jesus was praying for when he prayed to God the Father, sanctify them. So Jesus was praying for those who would believe in him. And what was he praying? What was he desiring? What was he asking God the Father to do for these people who would believe in him? And what he's praying, very simply, is that word to sanctify them. That's what he's asking God the Father to do, right? He's, he says to sanctify them. That's what he, he requests of God the Father. And that word, some of yours may translate it a little bit, bit different. Some may say consecrate them or set them apart, something like that. Those are all really good ways to try to express what Jesus was saying there. That Jesus was praying that his people, the people who believed in him, that they would be set apart from the world. That they would be distinctly marked in a, a different way of life, a different way of operating, a different way of living as human beings. Jesus is asking that those that God is saving out of the world, those that he has drawn out of that kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, Jesus is praying, God, set them apart. Make them different. Like, make them into a new people who function live in a very distinct way from the rest of the world. He's kind of drawing on this idea, I think, and many others think this too, of this idea of what priests were like in the Old Testament. There was this, like, there was this even ceremonial things that would be done sometimes to set apart priests for service, uh, to set them apart for service to their fellow human beings, but also service to God in the tabernacle or the temple. And Jesus is praying that for his disciples, that there would be this setting apart, this distinction made of his disciples to mark them off from the world. And there's layers to that, right? And, and we're going to walk back through these three words in a, in a few minutes that all start with the word M, just to try to help us get at what does that mean to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be consecrated to God? Like what was Jesus actually wanting to see happen in them? And I, I'd use three words that all start with M, and we'll come back around to these. But I think that that idea he's praying for of sanctifying and setting them apart were mature, for maturity, for ministry, and for mission. So for maturity, for ministry, and for mission. Those were all three ways that Jesus was, was wanting his people to be distinct, wanting his people to be set apart. So they were to be growing in maturity, right? To be sanctified, to be set apart means that they were to become more holy in the way that they lived their life, that they were to become more conformed to the commands of God, to live life the way that he calls them to live, distinct from the world, markedly different in how they obey God himself. Ministry would have to do with being set apart like a priest was, 
to minister to fellow people of God. Part, part of why God draws us out of the world and removes us from the world that's hostile to him is not just purely to worship God, but also to minister to each other, to, to benefit each other, to use the gifts that God's given to us to serve one another that is laced through Jesus' prayer in this chapter, his ministry, being set apart for ministry to the body. And that third ambition which we'll again look at, is this idea of being set apart, not just to circle the wagons and care for each other, although that's important, but also to go out to the unbelieving world. Jesus talks about how he has sent them out into the world, verse 18, right? He, he's not just saving them and setting them apart just to care for each other, but also to go out with the gospel to unbelievers, to take it where it hasn't gone yet, to call people to believe in the Lord who've yet to believe in them. And so he, he's asking God the Father to set them apart, set us apart, sanctify us, consecrate us for maturity, for ministry, and for mission. But what you see here, and why we pick this text, uh, verse 17, when he says, sanctify them, you can hear in Jesus' prayer as he asks God the Father to do that, you can hear and know how that actually can take place, Right? How can we actually grow in maturity? How can we actually grow in ministry to each other? How can we grow and be effective in our mission to the world? He says, asking God the Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth, right? That is the means by which these things are going to happen, is the truth. Uh, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Jesus had prayed just before this, even in what we read, verse 15, he had prayed kind of a defensive prayer, right? He had said, ask God the Father to keep them from the evil one. Did you catch that? Uh, so he knew that there's this great deceiver, right? Who from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, had, had, had his MO as I'm going to deceive the human race. I'm going to call them to disbelieve the truth of what God has said. And I'm going to feed them half-truths. I'm going to give them lies. I'm going to manipulate them. I'm going to deceive them. Jesus had prayed a defensive prayer in verse 15. That God the Father would keep us from him. That God would guard us against the temptations of the evil one. But here in verse 17 he prays a positive prayer, doesn't he? It more, more than just wanting us to be defended against false beliefs, Jesus wanted us to actually know and believe the truth positively, right? He wanted us to be shielded from lies and deception, but he wanted us to get into us, to get truth, to get the truth, he even calls it, to get that into us so that we can be set apart, that we can actually grow in maturity and ministry and mission. And the, the truth here that Jesus is talking about, it, it's like you can think about it as, the, I was trying to think of a metaphor to use, as the, the vehicle towards sanctification. The truth as the, the instrument God uses to bring about sanctification in our life is the truth. It's like the, another one with school starting that we may want to think of is it's like a curriculum, right? That the truth is the curriculum that God gives us to help us grow in these things, to help us know how to live, how to be more godly, how to be ministering to each other, how to be on mission. Jesus is saying that the truth, the imparting of the truth is the way that that setting apart is going to happen. It, it's the way that we're going to be effective in those things that God calls us to do. And the end of verse 17 is very important, the second phrase in this sentence, is because Jesus doesn't just say, sanctify them in the truth. He gets much more specific about the truth that is needed to bring those things about, to bring about holiness and ministry and mission. He says, your word is truth. 
That's the particular kind of truth uh, that we need to grow in maturity and ministry and mission is God's word, right? There is truth galore that we can know and that we do know, right? There are many true things that if we did a brain dump of everything we know that is true, I mean, we, we couldn't even contain all of it, right? There's so much truth that we know. I mean, kids, you're learning like two plus two is four, right? If you're in whatever, kindergarten or first grade, you're learning true things like that. Some of you who have PhDs in the room, you know true things. I could not, they're true, but we would not even understand them if you tried to articulate them. There's so much things that are true in general. That's what the Bible and theologians, not the Bible, but theologians would refer to as general revelation. There's things that God has shown us to be true in the world at large. Uh, that, that are known generally and that are true, those things can make, general revelation can make us smart. It can smarten us, right? But only special revelation, the actual word of God, can sanctify us, right? General revelation can smarten us. Special revelation can sanctify us. And it's the only thing that can sanctify us. Yeah, that, that the Bible is, God's word is the pathway to sanctification. It is the pathway towards growth and maturity and ministry and mission is the word of God. And I am thankful. I even tried to pray that in the prayer before. I am so thankful for teachers and educators and people who teach us truth. Even people who teach us the truth about all sorts of subjects. I praise God uh, for teachers in my life and people I continue to learn from. But if all we have is math, and science, and things like that, we will not know enough to be sanctified. We will not know enough to live lives of godliness. We must get the word of God in us for those things that take place. That is what Jesus is saying, that your word is truth, and truth is the means to sanctification. And so I want, in the the time that remains, to take uh, some moments and think about if truth is that important, if, if Jesus is praying, these people, I want them to be set apart, to grow and to minister and to be on mission, and truth is the way to bring it about, truth is, biblical truth is the way to facilitate those things, I want to try to touch down into practical life and think what, how can our, how should the life of our church be marked by the presence of biblical truth? Like, how does the rubber meet the road to actually help us grow in maturity, actually set us apart and distinguish us from the world? And I'll just say a summary statement this way, is that our maturation, our ministry, and our mission must all be grounded in the truth of Scripture. All three of those things. Our maturity, our maturation, our ministry, and our mission must all be grounded in the truth of Scripture. I want to walk through each of those and explain what I mean. First, our maturity, our, our maturation, our maturing as the people of God has to be grounded in the truth of Scripture. If you think of yourself as an individual, as a, as a believer, if you are going to grow in personal holiness, if you are going to grow in obedience to God, the way that that is going to happen is by you hearing the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, right? It doesn't happen any other way. We don't just magically grow in godliness. The Spirit doesn't work godliness into us in any other way than by the Word of God. 
That this is the means, this is the curriculum by which he teaches us and grows us in godliness, that he makes us more and more holy. I think sometimes we like to think that, well, God saves me, God transferred me into the kingdom, uh, I've been saved, and then it's like we shelf the Bible and we just start following our own, our own conscience, our own intuition, like, well, I know what's right and wrong. I know what I should be doing. Like, I just need to get the, the muster up the will to do it, right? And we act like we just have encoded in here everything that we need for life and godliness. But this is what we need for life and godliness. This is the word of God. Our consciences could be wrong. Our intuitions can and are wrong many times. If we are going to grow in godliness and become more and more holy in the way that we live, it will come by hearing, by reading the word of God. This is our creator speaking to us, telling us all that we need to know about him and all about ourselves and all about life. We do not grow, I'll say this, we do not grow in godliness by a wordless engagement with God. I think there's some people who like to think that they fellowship with God with nary a Bible open. Like they just walk and talk with him. And that is fine. That is glorious. We should try to commune with God in prayer. But if we are not hearing from God through his word, we will not grow in godliness. You will not grow in godliness. I would challenge you. I would love to hear this if any of you think this has been true in your life because it has not been true in my life. I want you to think if you have ever known in your own life or anyone that you know where there has been an explosion of godliness and sanctification in a person's life without them actually getting the Bible into them. That doesn't happen. The, the, the pathway to sanctification is by the imparting of God's truth from his word. That is how it takes place. I, I mentioned um, my wife's grandmother yesterday. Uh, a few of us got to go spend time with her as she's nearing death. And there's many things that she's shared. She's a believer um, that I want to write down today. Uh, but one of the things that she said to my son that I really appreciate, I don't even remember why it came up, but she was telling him how when she was a girl, uh, she grew up in church and, and she was told to, to memorize scripture, to like get it into her heart and mind. And she said she used to like hate that and thought, why do I need to do that? Like, why should I uh, spend my time trying to get these words just embedded uh, in, into my head? Um, but she looked at him and she said, I want you to know how important that is. Because as you get older, as you face temptation, you will need that. Like you need, she didn't say it as eloquent of words. She's struggling to, to, to have life within her. But she was trying to impart to him, and I was listening on, that she had lived and known and experienced what Jesus is saying here, that the way to sanctification is by getting God's word into you. Uh, it, it's not by just following your heart, by following your intuition. It's by getting God's word into you. And, and we want that to be a mark of our church, that, that we are getting God's word into us, that we are, are reading it, we're hearing it, we're listening to it over and over again. And we never outgrow our need for that. Uh, we never reach a point in Christian maturity where we no longer need to get more of God's word into us, Right? You could have the whole Bible memorized, if that's even humanly possible, this side of heaven. You could have the whole Bible memorized, and I would still tell you to keep reading it. Because it, in the moment is what the Spirit is going to use to sanctify you. The recall of it, the hearing of it. It's not just a, a dump of information into our head, but an engagement by God through it. It's the instrument he uses to grow us uh, as believers. 
And think about this. If we are ever tempted to think that, well, I don't really need the Bible to grow in godliness, Jesus used the Bible to be sanctified, to live a life of holiness, right? When he was tempted by Satan himself, when Satan comes up to him and is tempting him, what was Jesus' response back to him? Quoting the Bible. And if you think that you don't need scripture to be obedient, if you don't need God's word to be obedient, you are flying in the face of the example of our Savior himself, that, that he knew he needed the word of God to obey, that, that he needed to be sanctified, to be holy in his life. He needed the word. We need the word. So if maturity is ever going to take place in our life, it will be through the, the, the word of God getting into us, us hearing it, believing it, and doing it. It will not happen otherwise. So we need God's word for maturity. We also need it for ministry. And what I mean by ministry and what Jesus, I think, was praying that we would be set apart for as people as ministry to each other, ministry to fellow Christians. Uh, We're set apart from the world to care for each other, to, to minister to each other, to build each other up, right? So as a church, we need to have every ministry that we have, formal, informal, every time that we are ministering to each other, that we're seeking to build each other up, it should be colored by the Word of God. That there should be scripture that is either overtly present or that's underneath it. But as much as we can foreground it and have it be the centerpiece of what we do together uh, is for our good. And so I was trying to think about this as we think about ministry to each other in the life of the church and how important biblical truth is for our ministry to each other. I was trying to think of a lot of subdomains of our church's life and how important this is for us to have God's word be central. And I was thinking first of our, our ministry to children. Uh, when we think about ministering to children, whatever the context, it is so vital that we don't just teach them moral lessons, that we don't just teach them right and wrong, that we don't just uh, teach them to, to be kind to your brother, be nice to your mom and dad, listen to your teachers, those types of things. Those are good to teach them, but those things in of themselves won't sanctify them. Those things will not actually make them into new creations. They, they may make them moral, but you can go to a mosque and Muslim children are taught to be moral, right? The, the, you can go to an atheist home and there's certain things that they're at least trying to impart to their children of, of things to do that they think are good or at least right or appropriate to do. But we are to get God's word into the hearts and minds of our children. It has to come in small doses, right? We're going to have some memory verses. We're going to start teaching the kids that are dismissed uh, next month, and they're going to be short, right? But they are going to be the word of God. Uh, Not just Pastor Mark's ideas or mom and dad's ideas, but they're going to be texts of actual scripture that we're trying to get into the minds and the hearts of our children. And that must always be the case. It should be front and center in how we minister to children. It should be, the word of God should be front and center in how we minister to students, how we minister to high school, uh, middle school students. It should be front and center. Uh, in our youth group gatherings and camps that we go to and classes that they have on Sunday mornings. I don't know if you know this, but on on Sundays before the service, what they do most Sundays, the middle and high schoolers that meet, is they read through the text that we're going to read 
in here, and they're just trying to understand it. They're not just doing a bunch of, of games, but they're trying to understand what it means and then think of its bearing on our life uh, as individuals. And we are unembarrassed about that, unashamed about that, that the word is central to what we do in ministering to young people. It, it is not that we are anti-games, anti-fun. I am as pro-fun. I have like a very mellow personality, but I am as pro-fun as you can get, but I am more pro-Bible. I, I am more pro the importing of truth. I appreciate, I didn't tell her I was going to say this, but Sarah Hertzler went to youth camp uh, a week or two ago with some of our students. Thank you, Sarah, for, for going. I appreciate it. I asked her briefly how it was, and she said something, in fact, uh, not a direct quote, but she really appreciated how there was a a deep truthfulness and an engagement with the word of God while simultaneously trying to make it a fun, enjoyable, relational time for kids. And that this didn't become looming large. You just try to make it fun and enjoyable and do wacky games that they go tell their family about. But alongside those things, much more importantly, they're trying to get the word of God into students. And those are the types of things that we want to do over and over again in private conversations, but in classes and gatherings for our students. We want the word of God to be central. In our life groups, that many of you are part of, we want to strive to have the word be central. That's what we do. Not that we always have to do a thorough Bible study, but we ought to be reading the word. We ought to be trying to apply it into our lives, right? We don't just come around each other just for small talk and just to, to hear how work is going. Those things are good, important, necessary for us to know one another and care for one another. But if we are devoid of actual discussion about the word, we're not actually helping each other as we ought. We're going to be helping each other as friends, but not as believers. In our classes that we have that, that happen at 9 a.m., we want to try as best as we can to, as, as best as we can to, to go to the scripture over and over again. Not just to read books where other people tell us about God's book, but to actually read the Bible itself. Uh, to go to the text of scripture. We're going to have a class starting in a few weeks at 9 a.m. That, that Matt Harmon is going to be the primary teacher of that's going to go through the book of Luke. And it's going to take a while. Uh, but we're just going to slowly walk through the book of Luke together because the imparting of the word of God is what will sanctify us. In our women's gatherings, in our men's gatherings, we always feature teaching of the word and discussion about it. Uh, we, we don't just do, like, for guys, we don't just do, like, axe throwing and bonfires. And uh, I love those things. We maybe, I could not probably hit the thing if I threw an axe, but I, I like watching other people do those things. I enjoy uh, camaraderie, but we will always feature the word. The other things may come and go in the same. We have a women's gathering this Saturday night, and I know for a fact I'm talking to them, they are coming around the word together, and they're not embarrassed about that, not remotely. They're proud of that because that's a means by which our sisters in Christ will be sanctified and grown is by hearing the truth and processing it and then seeking to help each other live it, not just by spending time together. As important as that is, we spend time together around the word and in the word, sanctify them in the truth. In our worship gatherings, which you're part of right now, we try to feature the truth of the word as prominently as we can, right? We start with reading it at the beginning. We end our time with the word of God spoken over us. We read it. We preach it. It's even embedded in some of our songs. We want the word of God to be prominent in our gatherings. And those are all the formal dimensions of church life. But even in our informal gatherings, we need to be marked, even in private conversations even that maybe will happen after this service. We need to be marked by speaking the word to each other, 
by actually not just offering nice platitudes, not just offering sentimental thoughts, but trying to give counsel that is actually from the word, or even as best as we can, a summary of the word of God. We should counsel each other with the word. We should, as you're reading the Bible yourself, I'd encourage you, I try to say this often, read the Bible not just for yourself, but read it for other people. Like, the part of why God gives us the, you the word, why he gives us the word, is to minister it to other people, to, to be a, a conduit for truth to come to them, right? And so we need to have the word coming into us so that we can give it out to others. So in our ministry to each other, the word, the truth of scripture must be prominent. If, if we're going to help each other, it's going to be through the presence of the word in our interactions. And the third thing, the mission of our church, the mission of God's people, we have to have the truth of Scripture. We have to have God's Word foremost and prominent in our mission. D.A. Carson talking about this text, John 17, and this part of the prayer specifically, he said that sanctification is always for mission. Like being set apart from the world is always for the sake of mission. Not just to escape the world, not just to get away from it or to be shielded from it, but Jesus says he sends us back into it. We're we're set apart from it not to run away, but to come back to it, to come back to the people who are enemies of God that we used to be rank and file with and to tell them the good news of Christ. And as we do that, as individuals or as we send people out as a church, we do it armed with the word of God. That is what we come to the world with. It's not just to come to them with smiles and with good deeds and, hey, we'll rake your leaves and we'll dig you a well, we'll do these. Those are wonderful things. We should do those things. I'm not saying not to do those things. But we must do those things as we engage with the world here in our community and around the world. We engage with people for the sake of giving them the truth of the gospel. Not just to do good deeds, not just to do good works for them, right? You see this even in verse 19 about Jesus' life himself, that he was sanctified. He was consecrated for the sake of other people, for unbelievers like us, right? He says in verse 19, he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself, like I set myself apart, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, Jesus was talking, no doubt, about the looming thing that was about to take place of his crucifixion, of his death. He was saying, I am setting myself apart to go to that cross for the sake of others so that they can be brought into your kingdom, Father. Like, I'm consecrating myself. I'm I'm being set apart for that purpose, to bring them in. And the same is true for us. Just as he died for us so that he might bring us in, he consecrated himself for mission. We are consecrated for mission as well. We are set apart. We can't die for other people's sins like Jesus, right? We're not set apart to suffer for unbelievers, but we are set apart to speak to them. Like we are set apart to take the good news to them here in our community and around the world. We are set apart for that. It's not an optional part of our our lives as Christians. And if we are going to go to the world, if we are going to represent Jesus to them, we go armed, like I said, with the good news. We go armed with the truth of Scripture, right? We we do not live in a post-truth world because there is no such thing right? Like there is truth that people must know if they're to be saved. And if we don't tell it to them, they will not be saved. 
And there's hard things that we need to tell people. There, there's hard things that we need to, to call them to, to, to acknowledge their sinfulness, to, to call them to repentance, and to call them to rest their soul upon this man who was crucified for them 2,000 years ago and raised from the dead. We get to proclaim to them this good news that even though they're an enemy of God, that God the Son has come and died for them and been raised for them, but that he calls them to repent and believe. That is the truth that we must carry to them. And when we go, when we do evangelism, when we share the good news, we are not, hear me, we are not telling them our truth. We are telling them the truth. And we're not just confronting their truth. We are telling them the truth of God that they need to hear. We don't just appeal to their preferences. We don't just appeal to sentimentality. We don't just appeal to relationship like, hey, you can have a bunch of friends and you can have a sweet time at church. We teach them, we preach to them the truth that they are a sinner, but that they have a Savior who can save. Uh, that they have a, a, a Messiah who can save them, right? We proclaim the truth to them. And as best as we can when we do evangelism, we should be actually trying to use the word of God itself. Not just my thoughts, my musings on it, but tell them the scriptures. Tell them uh, verses that, that tell them of their guilt, but of God's grace to them. Like actually use God's word. If they're going to be sanctified in the truth, it's going to come by hearing the word of God, not just by hearing your thoughts, right? So we need to, to in our evangelism, share the truth. In our church planning endeavors, both in Indiana and then around the world, we need to be going to communities with the gospel, with the truth. We do not go to places just to be a good influence in the community, just to be a nice place that people can come and feel camaraderie. We go with the gospel to save people, like to, to help them know that they are destined for help, that they can be transferred to the kingdom of light, and that they can become a son and daughter of God. That is what we do when we do church planting. We're talking slowly about trying to do a church plant even down in North Manchester uh, within the next few years. And some of you, if you know North Manchester, you know that there's a lot of churches already down there, right? And so some people have wondered, why would we even consider doing that? And we're looking into it, we're prayerful, we're considering this. But one thing we know about that community is that though there is a lot of churches, I will not say all of them, but many of them, and I don't say this with, with lightness, many of them do good things. Like they do nice things for their community. They do good works for their community, but they are devoid of the truth of Scripture. They're devoid of an actual gospel about sin and salvation and judgment and eternal life. And we are not okay with that. Like when, when we think about a community, it's not just that we want Christians doing good works, but that we want Christians telling the truth as we do good works. Because good works will not save, the gospel will save. The truth of the gospel is what will save. And as we send people to the reaches of the world to go to unreached people groups, we don't send them there just to build canoes, just to dig wells, just to provide medical care, just to provide services to people. Those may be means to, to gain conversation with people, but we send them to preach the gospel. We send them to tell the good news of Christ. We are not anti-good works. We are pro-preaching the truth, right? The truth of Scripture. I want to end with this because I want to hear, I want us to hear, I want to remember this myself is that we must not 
idolize truth as an end in and of itself. There are many churches that pride themselves, and we may face this temptation to just pride ourselves on like, we know the truth. We believe the truth. We have the truth. Nobody else has it. As if the end goal is just to possess truth. The end goal of getting the truth of God's word into our hearts, into the minds and hearts of our children and our community, is that we might know God. Not just that we will know the truth about him. Because there are millions of people who know that there are people probably in this room who you know the truth about God. You hear it go into your ears every Sunday and you don't know the one it's pointing you to. You've not been reconciled to him because you don't actually believe it and submit to it. Like you're not resting your soul upon what it tells you to rest your soul upon and who it tells you to rest your soul upon. The end goal as we lace truth through everything from kids ministry to youth ministry to services to women's gatherings and men's gatherings and life groups and church plants and missions is not just to give people the truth but to give them the truth so that they can know Christ. That is the end goal. And we must never, ever forget that. Never just settle for the presence of truth. But I would note, this is a prayer of Jesus, verse 17, not a command, right? He is praying that God the Father would sanctify people. That the truth alone, just as an idea, doesn't sanctify, doesn't save anyone. God does. Like truth is the instrument by which he does it, by which he saves people and by which he grows people and sanctifies us. But truth in and of itself does nothing. God does. And we must remember that as we hear truth, as we preach truth, as we celebrate truth, as we remind each other of truth, may we revel in the fact that that truth gains us favor of God. It gains us union with God as we rest our soul upon Christ. Because Jesus said this same night, John 14, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. And so may we never idolize truth as an end of itself, but love the one it points us to and the one it comes from. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing another song. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you speak, that you don't just give us general revelation, but that you've given us special revelation to know our state outside of Jesus, but to also know that you sent him to suffer in our place, to bear our sins upon the cross so that we might be forgiven, and that you have to, we thank you that you have told us truthfully that he has been raised and that we can share in his eternal life. God, may our church be one marked by truth throughout every dimension, every segment of our life, personally and corporately. But may we never settle for truth as an in and of itself, but as a means by which to know you and to grow closer and closer to you. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.